This brief sketch of John Brown's activities and interactions is the context. Although, again, the question is, what might we surmise about how black people felt about him overall? That is, the shape of their thinking, both positively and negatively, too. Of course, this might first pertain to his personality and treatment of people in general. We can reasonably assume that Brown was well-liked by most black people because the record suggests he was typically quiet and kind in his normal conduct, but he could become quite zealous and headstrong when black interests were at stake. His depth of Christian piety and charity are themes that both precede and follow him in his story, and his kindness toward blacks was essential to this reputation, although he might be stern, too, as he was in 1858, after he had led a group of 12 black people from slavery in Missouri to freedom in Canada. When a couple of the younger men were exulting in their newfound freedom and perhaps playing around a bit too much for Brown, the bearded liberator sternly advised them to stop playing and pick up a book. He likewise clashed with a woman named Jane in the same group he helped to rescue, and he and Jane seemed to have disagreed over food preparation, if I remember correctly. Brown was by nature stubborn and imperious at times, and under certain practical circumstances, he could probably treat black people the same as he treated white people, which is to say, as if he was naturally more correct than they were. But friendliness to black people was not unusual among abolitionists, and, as I've noted, human interactions always have personal aspects. Certainly, most black people Brown encountered probably recognized his sincerity and conviction regarding slavery, while it appears there was neither scent of prejudice nor hypocrisy in his actions. We should assume, then, that overall he was well-liked and was locally respected and appreciated by the black community wherever he was known although private conversations among his black associates might have entailed other observations about his personality and the intensity of his traits, it is likely that he was generally spoken of in positive terms. On the other hand, along with intimacy and fellowship comes a measure of privilege, which opened the door to other dynamics. Being permitted to interact to some degree within black circles of leadership, being taken into the confidence of important black leaders, being affirmed by them in private conversations, and even being back-patted and saluted in public forums such as the church enhanced Brown's already substantial self-confidence. This self-confidence and sense of acceptance among black people gave him the license to share his ideas and exchange with blacks with the same passion and even imperiousness that he was known for among family members and hometown associates. If not local black associates, certainly black leaders in the late 1840s and 50s probably began to realize that their friend Brown was not only a good man with an extraordinary sensitivity to their plight as blacks in a racist society, but to some extent, their whispered admiration may also suggest they saw him as a kind of secret weapon. Now, this is all well and good, I suppose, but I also believe that they saw John Brown could be quite forceful, opinionated, and that he had a strong, independent character that sometimes made him something of a loose cannon. The problem is, he may have been too much at times. In fact, three recorded examples may suggest this anecdotally. First, according to Frederick Douglass, when Brown was staying at his home, The latter was indefatigable and overbearing in talking about his plans and strategies. No matter how much he loved and regarded his blue-eyed amigo, Douglas found him overbearing in this case, almost to the point of boredom. Second, 
in March 1859 Detroit meeting that included Frederick Douglass and other black leaders from Detroit and Chatham, Ontario. John Brown was imperious. He bumped heads not only with Douglas, but with others. And he certainly disagreed with one abolitionist present in the room named George D. Baptiste, whose own recommendation at the time was to blow up white churches in the South. Now, Brown firmly rejected the idea of blowing up churches, as if he had a right to decide on the policies and plans of these gathered black men. And sometimes I wonder how de Baptiste felt about that, how he and other more militant leaders felt about Brown's imposing presence and attitude, including the audacity he showed in questioning the courage of Douglas and others for not approving of his Harper's Ferry plan at that meeting. I can't help but think that some of them may have quietly said to themselves, who the hell does this guy think he is? Years ago, I met a local black historian in Detroit who expressed her resentment toward Brown for his conduct in that unsung 1859 summit in her city. She told me that she did not appreciate how Brown had essentially embarrassed Douglas in front of the rest of the brothers in that meeting. I'm not entirely in agreement with her for a couple of reasons, although that doesn't change the fact that Brown probably was overbearing in that meeting, and if he rubbed folks the wrong way, it's probably fair to acknowledge he was too much at times. However, I'd point out that John Brown acknowledged his own imperious tendencies, so I'd resist the notion he was racially paternalistic, as some have suggested. In general, he liked to tell people what to do, and when he asked for opinions, he generally only did so as an exercise, since he tended to do what his first mind had already decided. Second, he was annoyed with Douglas because the latter was backpedaling at the time, something that Douglas can hide in the folds of history by conflating three different 1859 meetings into one episode at Chambersburg in his autobiography. Listeners may not like it, but I think that by 1859, Douglas had become something of a prima donna, if not a rock star. Now, the third episode, in 1858, Brown clashed again with some of the black Canadian expatriates at the Chatham Convention, who wanted to see his plan launched when the United States might fall into war with a foreign power. Some of them, understandably bitter in their view toward the United States, also wanted to fight under the British flag and would not fight under the flag of the United States, the country that had enslaved them. In both cases, Brown insisted that he would never launch his attack upon slavery when his country was disadvantaged by war and that he considered it traitorous to do so. Nor would he abandon the flag of the United States. His work was, in his own mind at least, an extension of the work of the patriots and founders of the country, or at least a deliverance of the United States from the power of slavery. In these cases, then, I can imagine that their respectful and even submissive responses to Brown's commanding statements probably masked a measure of resentment. Ultimately, the Detroit-Chatham connection yielded only one man for Brown's Harper's Ferry plan, as I've mentioned. That man, Osborne Anderson, was sent in the unlikely case, as they thought, that Brown might actually succeed. If Brown succeeded in Virginia, they privately opined, then they would all look bad for having sent no one to his side. But in the end, they were only willing to risk one man. We may argue for the pros and cons of Brown's Virginia plan, but even a pro-Brown reading should acknowledge that this group of expatriate black men was quite reasonable in their hesitancy. Who was John Brown, after all, to issue guarantees of their safety or to express certainties that his plan would succeed? In the end, even Harriet Tubman may or may not have changed her mind about sending him men, even though her opinion of John Brown remained almost reverential. 
successful or not, Harriet would later say Christ was working in John Brown if John Brown was not actually Christ himself. Well before the tensions between Brown and Douglas in the late 1850s, it's interesting to point out the curious episode of Brown's peculiar essay entitled Sambo Mistakes, a short serial type of article written by Brown for publication in a black newspaper called The Ram's Horn. Certainly, if one episode in this story raises questions about how black people felt about John Brown, it's surely this one. The Ramshorn was the brainchild of the freeborn and Brooklyn-based abolitionist Willis Augustus Hodges, whose 1849 autobiography was edited and published in 1982 by Willard Gatewood Jr. According to Gatewood, Hodges founded the black newspaper in 1847 along with the successful black restaurateur Thomas Van Rensselaer. Frederick Douglass, fresh from his European tour that year, joined as an assistant editor of the Ramshorn in August 1847. In fact, on the single surviving copy of the Ramshorn, it is Van Rensselaer and Douglass's names that appear as editors on the masthead. Of course, Douglass had plans of his own as an editor, and when it was revealed that he intended to publish his own newspaper, Douglass wanted the ram's horn to be subsumed by his publication, which became known quite famously as the North Star. But Van Rensselaer and Hodges resisted. Douglass went his own way, and the ram's horn remained in publication for the time being. According to Gatewood, Hodges and Brown met while the latter was operating his wool commission house in Springfield, and Brown bought a subscription to the Ramshorn and sent Hodges a list of prospective subscribers, too, and some money to aid publication expenses. The Hodges family tradition states that Brown and Hodges, quote, met in the office of the Ramshorn, met as brothers, parted as friends, end quote and shared the same hopes, which were black empowerment and the end of racial oppression. For his part, according to the same family record, Hodges, quote, considered Brown a valuable ally, a good and noble-hearted Christian gentleman who befriended the poor and oppressed, and who shared his view that words alone would not destroy slavery and racial repression, end quote. It's not quite clear how Brown and Hodges met, but my guess is that it was through Frederick Douglass after the latter had met Brown in Springfield. It is my surmise, too, that although Brown was inspired to write Sambo Mistakes for the Ramshorn because he and Hodges shared similar ideas about black economic advancement, the idea for the essay was perhaps affirmed to some extent by Douglass himself and was even discussed with both Hodges and Douglass in late 1847 before Brown wrote it. Of course, because we have no print copy of Sambo Mistakes in the Ramshorn, question remains whether it was actually published, because all we have is a draft in Brown's own handwriting, headed by the line, quote, for the Ramshorn, end quote. Gatewood not only assumes that Sambo Mistakes was published in the Ramshorn, but suggests it was published in early 1848. 
Now, this may very well be, but we simply have no way to prove this is the case. It is possible, on the other hand, that Brown was encouraged by conversations with Hodges, took up his pen, and even submitted the essay to the editor for publication, but that the article was put on hold. We simply don't know. There is no apparent reference in the Brown family record that the piece was published, and we would not even know about it were it not for the fact that Brown's copy survived for history after Clifton Taylor, a Virginia journalist, smuggled it out of Brown's papers at the Kennedy Farm following the Harpers Ferry raid and held on to it for many years, the essay finally ending up in the archives of the Maryland Center for History and Culture in Baltimore, where it's held today. Sambo Mistakes is about 1,400 words long, and is written as the confession of an anonymous black writer, sharing from the wisdom of years as to the hazards and extravagances of free black people living in the North. It is not an abolitionist work per se, although it is a reformist work reflecting a stream of thinking that was current in the free black community in that era. In the 1840s, Black leaders were concerned about the best social, economic, and political course that free blacks could take, and among them were those who believed that free blacks should pull away from urban life because of its temptations and challenges. Brown, in writing Sambo Mistakes, is not writing about a person named Sambo, but rather he is writing as a pretended black man warning his brethren why they should avoid making, quote, Sambo mistakes, end quote. In Sambo Mistakes, the pretend black writer who actually is John Brown admonishes free blacks to read books of quality instead of, quote, silly novels and other miserable trash, end quote. He warns his black readers to avoid bad habits like chewing and smoking tobacco, He admonishes them not to join secret societies like the Masons, which divert them from instructive and useful things into a course of useless ceremonies and meetings. He likewise scolds his brethren for being too hard on each other and injuring the influence of successful black men in the community out of malice. Writing as a black man, Brown continues that many black men spent their money on superfluous things like canes and watches, fine clothing and jewelry in order to make themselves look successful, and otherwise spent their money on extravagances that could better have been put to their expenses and savings. Politically, Brown's purported black writer is also critical of blacks who tamely submit to racist aggressions and indignities instead of nobly resisting their racist aggressors. He's likewise critical of blacks engaging in sectarian controversies and disagreements that were divisive in the black community. Repeatedly, the clever hook in the piece is the alleged black writer telling the editors that now he could, quote, see in one second where I missed it, end quote. Now, on one hand, an essay comparable to Sambo Mistakes today would not be published in any black publication unless it was written by someone intentionally masquerading as a black person, such as the controversial Rachel Dolezal did in recent years. Even a social critique written by the most sympathetic and popular white writer would probably not make it past an editor's desk in our time, unless it was underwritten by a host of notable black writers and editors. In the 20th century, perhaps the closest approximation of such a white writer was Truman Nelson, 
the radical writer of the 60s and 70s, who was greatly respected by black writers and social critics. But Nelson did not come close, apart from his critique of Martin Luther King Jr.'s nonviolent philosophy. Indeed, no white writer with any sense of history and society would have presumed to write a critique of black social and cultural indiscretions, especially in light of the present discussion about cultural appropriation. Probably, were one to read Sambo Mistakes to a contemporary woke activist, there's a good chance that Brown would be dismissed as a well-intentioned but paternalistic racist. From our perspective, and perhaps even in the 19th century, then it's possible that Brown submitted the piece for publication and that one or more of its editors, that is Van Rensselaer, Hodges, or even Frederick Douglass, were simply uncomfortable with it. Of course, again, we do not know. On the other hand, what if Gatewood is right and Sambo Mistakes was published in 1848? What would that suggest? Clearly, if we had a copy of Sambo Mistakes published in the Ramshorn, it might be viewed with greater sympathy by modern readers, since its publication would assume Brown had full editorial support and approval. But we don't, so it's just as likely that the article was not published, perhaps because even the paper's black editors found it awkward despite their personal affinity toward John Brown, at least on the part of Hodges and Douglas. But if Sambo Mistakes was published, Is it still correct to view Brown as being racially presumptuous and guilty of appropriation and paternalistic racism for writing it? Again, the article is entitled Sambo Mistakes. This may or may not be an important point. In subsections, Brown carelessly rendered an abbreviated title as Sambo's Mistakes without an apostrophe. However, the article nowhere invokes Sambo as a cultural figure or spoofs black men as Sambo or otherwise engages in literary minstrelsy. Now, one might accuse Brown of writing in blackface, but the question is whether this is what he was doing. I doubt it. Unlike Lincoln, Brown had no love for blackface minstrelsy, and he always treated black people with respect. So I'd argue that Sambo Mistakes was neither intended as a blackface spoof, nor would editors like Van Rensselaer, Hodges, and Douglas have received it that way, even if they decided against publishing it. Second, the article is engaging a pressing concern within the black community. Brown wants to admonish his black friends and neighbors, but he seems aware that it would be more awkward for him to write his social critique as John Brown, especially since the black community in the Northeast, at least in New York State, knew of him as an advocate of relocation to the Adirondack lands offered by Garrett Smith. As noted, Brown is echoing the concerns of clergy and leaders in the black community regarding the ethics, management of resources, and other aspects relating to responsibility and good values within the black community. We should assume that black leaders understood and advocated many of the same things that Brown's pseudo-black author is admonishing to his imagined readers. Third, the tone and content of Sambo Mistakes, reflects a wise, mature, and insightful black man who is advising against other blacks making Sambo Mistakes. The writer is a sage with a serious expression, but a twinkle in his eye. He is expressing his ideas to the editors and constantly admits, to the advantage of his readers, that although he formerly made mistakes, now he understood what is important. Finally, we need to put Brown's Sambo Mistakes in context. In his book, Sambo, The Rise and Demise of an American Jester, 
1986, historian Joseph Boskin observed that from the early decades of the 19th century, popular culture in the United States was inundated with millions of Sambo representations. By mid-century, when Brown was writing, Sambo already approximated an iconic status. And although Sambo was celebrated in the South as a comic buffoon on the plantation, antebellum images of Sambo in the North presented him as a kind of, quote, urban dandy, end quote. Sambo was also featured in abolition publications, so we should not assume Brown's use of Sambo was done in a vacuum. But while Boskin says that even abolitionists could use Sambo in a manner hinting at humor, John Brown's Sambo mistakes does not make fun. It is serious, except for the author's manner of saying repeatedly that he could now see his errors in a wink, meaning rather that it had taken him years to learn these lessons in life. conclusion, while there's no doubt that Brown's associates found his egalitarian presumptions refreshing, the question remains as to whether, at times, they felt that he, their white ally, presumed too much. In their private conversations or in their reflections in mind and heart, did they ever think of John Brown as excessive, as overbearing, or even audacious? Certainly, they knew that he could speak with them as fellows and colleagues, and that there was never the taint of racial condescension in his manner and communication, so typical of the time, and perhaps even today. On the other hand, were their sensitivities prepared for the tone and style that John Brown presented? Was he ever, again, too much for them? Did they, in some cases, quietly resent his boldness or even the assumption he reflected, not the least of which, that he could lead them or at least lead with them? As I've tried to show, these are questions that obviously cannot be answered fully, and except for certain hints in the record, the overall narrative suggests that John Brown's relationship to black associates and colleagues was quite positive, maybe even exceptional. But Brown and his black colleagues were people, and whenever people collaborate, there are tensions, conflicts, disagreements, and sometimes even a falling out. History hints, at least, that Brown and Douglas had some of these difficulties, although the latter outlived almost everyone in the story of Brown's raid on Harbors Ferry, which enabled Douglas to provide the official narrative of John Brown, not only in his third and final autobiography, but in a number of speeches he made in the 1880s, for instance, especially his speech at Storer College near Harpers Ferry in 1881. There's not a single criticism of Brown in The Black Witness, except, as I've mentioned, for the observation made by Osborne Anderson in 1860 that Brown should have pressed through the issues at Harper's Ferry for the sake of the enslaved instead of worrying over his captives. Yet even Anderson's blow is soft-gloved and framed by warmth and admiration. Asking the question of what John Brown's black allies thought of him is a layered one. It's not so simple as making either the retrospective charge of white paternalism or arguing idealistically that he was above reproach. Black-white interactions are first human interactions and entail, like every other association, personal and circumstantial issues as well as the question of racial attitudes on the part of the privileged and the oppressed, as central as that remains. Down through history, black people have typically benefited from, if not depended upon, white allies. 
But at times, as we've noted, black people have tried to extricate themselves from such alliances for the benefit of black solidarity and black empowerment. This is entirely understandable and even admirable. A century after John Brown, Malcolm X, when finally free of the provincial prejudices of Elijah Muhammad, nevertheless insisted that his organization of Afro-American unity could not have white members. Malcolm welcomed white allies, but he felt that they should organize among themselves and work within the white community to promote black liberation. After Malcolm, black nationalism was expressed in a variety of ways, both cultural and political, but at the core was a closed-door policy toward white involvement. And although many black nationalists maintained a high opinion of John Brown, he was the exception in their thinking, at best. Today, in an age of tensions roused by the renewed expression of recalcitrant, explicit, and even hostile white reactionary racism, Some black people are understandably inclined to put up their guard, push away white allies, and revisit history with far less sympathy toward the white allies of the past. Even John Brown has felt the bite of such revisionism, such as in the screenplay of the movie Emperor, where the writers have Frederick Douglass verbally browbeating John Brown for his white privilege. This kind of discourse very likely never took place between Douglas and Brown. In fact, even in 1848, Douglas publicly wrote of Brown as identifying so strongly with black people that he felt the pain of their oppression. On the other hand, the private estimations and personal transactions of history are often not preserved for the record, and the question remains for those of us, especially those of us who are interested in alliances and allies, how this really played out. As I often state, the story of John Brown has its greatest value today for little white children, not for black children. Black children have their own heroes and do not need John Brown as a hero. But I would argue that white children need Brown and others like him to reshape their thinking about the past and the present too. So in the final reel, the story of John Brown gives us plenty to consider in regard to political and social alliances among other things, the challenges and benefits of being racial allies in a racist society, and the importance of not lightly or fashionably entering into such alliances. For if one thing can be said of John Brown, he knew the cost of being a white ally. He knew it might cost his life, and it was a price that he was willing to pay. But what does that say about the rest of us? From New York City, This has been Louis A. DeCaro Jr., and this was John Brown Today.